On this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show, we are going to explore an important question. Did you know that African-American Christianity did not begin in America? It actually began in Africa. Well, here to talk to us about this history is Dr. David Daniels. He is a professor of church history at McCormick Theological Seminary. And on the episode, he's going to present some data from the historical record that will permanently change the way you understand how Christianity developed amongst Africans and blacks in America and in Europe. Thank you for joining us for this important conversation. Hello there and welcome back to the Anthony Bradley Show. I am thrilled today to have on the show Dr. David Daniels. We're going to have a conversation about the history of Christianity in the black diaspora, both here in the U.S. and across the Caribbean and, and in Africa and in the U.K. This is a really important conversation, and Dr. David Daniels has joined us. He's on the faculty of McCormick Theological Seminary and has been there since 1987, where he is the professor of church history. He was inaugurated in that position in 2003. Uh, Dr. Daniels received the Bachelor of Arts from Bowdoin College in Brunswick, uh, Maine, in 1976, majoring in religion and economics. In 1979, he obtained the Master of Divinity degree from Yale. Uh, during his years at Yale, he was the Benjamin E. Mays Fellow for the Fund for Theological Education. Uh, Dr. Daniels earned a Ph.D. in church history from Union Theological Seminary in New York in 1992. From 1979 to 1983, he was instructor of religion at the Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire. Uh, Dr. Daniels has been a member of the American Academy of Religion since 1989, the Society for the Study of Black Religion since 1993, and the Society for Pentecostal Studies since 1979. Dr. Daniels from McCormick Seminary, thank you so much for joining me today on The Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you so much for the invitation. Glad to be here. So I first encountered you because you came to the King's College and blew my mind. You filled in some historical gaps on the history of Christianity and the Black experience in ways that I had not known. And I have a PhD. And I, in Black Liberation Theology, and you filled in some gaps that I just absolutely blew my mind. So I really wanted to, to have a chat with you today because I, I want people to know, to know more about this, this, this history. When you came to King's, one of the first things that, that you did is you wanted to kind of lay out the disparity between what people assume about the introduction of Christianity in the Black experience versus the reality in terms of that history. Can you just give us a sense of what people assume and then what the truth is? And then, then I want to go back and kind of unpack that narrative from the 14th, 15th century, you know, forward. So again, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be part of this conversation. So first of all, if you look at your average textbook, you watch your average TV show that talks about the black church or average documentary, it will probably give you the sense and maybe even will say that African-Americans in North America were first converted to Christianity on a slave plantation. 
the beginning of the black church and slavery within that narrative are inseparable. If it wasn't for slavery, there wouldn't be a black church. And not, the argument goes, merely because African-Americans wouldn't be in North America, but African-Americans or people of African descent in North America would not have been introduced to Christianity at all. They would have still been practicing traditional religion. And then those with a little bit of education know, or Islam. So that's the narrative. Even there are people who will nod towards saying that on the slave ships brought to North America involuntarily, you have a percentage that were Muslim, and then people who are in the know will say that there's a percentage that were Christian, but then they leave the story there. And so it's like, where they're from? Who are you talking about? What impact might they have? All of that is bracketed. And so how would someone in the know explain how Christianity got to, to West Africa? How would people know that history? Here's the thing, is that I found documents in the 19th century talking about Christianity along the Atlantic coast of Africa. I've seen those documents mentioned or things being reoccurring in the early 20th century. And then even texts um, that begin to emerge in the 1960s, 1970s will talk about Christianity in a number of places. The Congo along the sort of southwestern part of, of um, the African continent. But then even people will know Benin, Wari. They'll mention Angola. They'll mention Cape Verde. They'll mention Senegambia. They'll mention places along the coast. And depending on, on where you are, say in the 1500s or 1600s, will determine how long it's sustained. But they'll also mention Santome and Principe, um, these different islands right off the coast. However, the first thing was that people would, would mention that, but then there was no connection between those people and the people that actually were forced on ships and brought to North America. You also, in the presentation at King's, mentioned that there was a history of Black Christianity in Europe. How so, did that happen? Well, it's interesting. Um, so there, there's two tracks or two routes. So one is a voluntary route, and those often are Ethiopians who are within this sort of Mediterranean world. So not only are they in Ethiopia, but you find Ethiopians in Cairo, you find Ethiopians in Jerusalem, in Cyprus, there's some in Lebanon. I've even heard there were some within Constantinople or what becomes Istanbul. There's some in Rome. They're in this world. And they are noted, at least by the late 1400s, as being pilgrims who, like all pilgrims, they want to see the holy sites of Europe. Some of them have already been to Jerusalem. Some of them maybe are, are residents in Jerusalem. And so they want to go to see Rome and Venice and Florence and go to Spain and see the holy sites there. But again, the thing is, is that we often have this image of Africans in this period only being defined by slavery. So the only way that a European would encounter an African through that slavery framework is if the European is going to Africa. We totally miss that Europeans or Africans show up in Europe. Um, there's a, a book, um, Northrop, I believe is his last name, The African Discovery of Europe. So he inverts that concept. Instead of Europe discovering Africa, Africa discovers Europe. And it's within that framework the Ethiopians are traveling. But there's also some often nobility from the Congolese in particular, but there's even some from Benin, I believe, and Wari that will travel to, in particular, Spain and Portugal. And then the Congolese will have some 
part of sort of the diplomatic corps, in quotation mark, that will travel to Amsterdam in addition to Rome. There's this voluntary movement. Now, you ask me, how many people are we talking about? I'm not sure. So maybe it's 500, maybe it's 1,000, but they show up, they recognize, they encounter different and prominent people within Europe at that time. So they're not merely just encountering the working classes. They're encountering the elite of Europe at this time. Then, of course, there is the narrative that we're all familiar with, Africans who are brought to Europe through the slave trade. And two parts of that. One part is that they're all the way through this period from the 15, from the 1400s up until the 1600s, there will be Africans who are enslaved in Europe, especially in Spain and Portugal. But you always have to ask what happens to their children. So some of their children then become free. Some of them marry other Africans. Some marry so-called white Portuguese. Can you get that? White Portuguese. Because you have to distinguish them from the black Portuguese. And then others of them will then families. And then out of that, and that's what's amazing to me, that not only are they there, but they are employed, if that's the right verb, in a variety of occupations. Now, again, I'm not sure if I'm talking about 500 people or 1,000 people, but some will become teachers. A few will become professors within colleges and seminaries or colleges and universities. A few will be, one will be a famous poet, Juan Latino, one of the famous poets of Spain during this time period, during the uh, 1500s. A few will become priests. Others of them will be priests within Africa. A few will actually, especially if you're of African and European heritage, then you could become a priest within Europe. So one of the most famous, in my account, is Vicente Lusitano, who becomes, and now in my language, an Afro-Portuguese Roman Catholic priest who not only serves within the Iberian Peninsula, but he also serves in Rome. And then he's part of this famous music debate. Almost all people who know music history know about this famous music debate within the middle part of the uh, 1500s. And he wins the debate. So he's not even merely in the debate, but he wins the debate. Now, I should tell you, music theorists later argue the other guy should have won. But it just doesn't happen to me. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Bradley. Can you get this? The black man wins, even though he was wrong, as we find out later. You know, that's not the scenario that we find in modern racism. But that's a different story. But he becomes the first, again, all my qualifiers, Afro-Portuguese Roman Catholic priest to become Protestant. And he becomes Protestant sometime around 1560. And he's connected with a group of, of uh, Catholics who lean towards Protestantism um, within the Venetian Republic. And then eventually he goes to Germany. But he's, he doesn't go to Wittenberg. He goes to Wartenberg, W-U-R-R-E-T-M-B, but, but again, not W-I-T-T. So he's there. So again, it's, it's this classic story for me that you have someone who not only is a priest, which is a status in and of itself, but he's interacting with the elite of Rome and the Vatican. But then he becomes Protestant, following the trajectory, obviously, of not many, but of a significant number of, excuse my language, white Europeans during this same time period. And then there's others who are bishops. There are two who become Roman Catholic bishops, one of Congolese descent, the other one of Ethiopian descent. So when one, when one looks at this period, one does not find the, the race ceiling that one will see during slavery, nor even in some cases after slavery in places like the United States. They have a level of mobility that we don't know. And they're accepted in the Christian church. 
their children are baptized, they're married in the church, their funerals in the church, and again, some of them serve as church, and then two actually become a bishop. Uh, the Ethiopian, oh, let me, on that side, the Congolese was underage. I can't remember canonical law, but either you have to be 30 or something like that to be consecrated as a bishop. He was younger than that. The Pope makes an exception for him to be consecrated younger than the age limit of canon law. Again, modern racism does the exception the other way. You won't even be considered. He's not only considered, but they make an exception. And then the second person, who's of Ethiopian descent, who converts to Catholicism, then becomes a, a, a Roman Catholic bishop, he becomes the Pope's representative to all of the Orthodox world. Russian, Greek, Coptic, or Egyptian, the whole Orthodox world, he is the Pope's representative. Any Orthodox correspondence goes through him before the Pope gets it. So he, he was the connection between the East and the West. Yes, he was. In, in Catholic language, he's the papal nuncio. I mean, again, the fact that, and I said this a couple of times, all of this is happening before modern racism. So not only do we have to be careful about a slave narrative, a slavery framework, trying to exhaust the whole story, but we also have to be careful about a modern racism narrative and framework exhausting the whole story, that they are doing things that we will not see in any significant way after 1660 or 1700. So in, in Western Europe, you had black Christians, many were Catholic, some Protestant, who were members of society in the marketplace, freely living in a non-racist society. They were fully integrated. Is that what you're saying? In Spain and Portugal, you had these black Christians who were just living, and some of them in positions of authority and, and the nobility? There would be nobility from Africa. It's, it's unclear of how many made it into European nobility, except for, obviously, the famous Medici family. That um, He obviously has a, a mother who's African, and, and he's described as being of African descent, and he does become the prince in Florence. So, so here's the qualifier. The qualifier is you have to remember that Europe is divided at this time basically between the nobility and peasants. So Africans, the majority, are occupying that realm that peasants occupy. And if you say, is their existence, and then, then a group of them, unfortunately, are enslaved. This is not uh, an ideal society for a person of African descent. However, there are some places that do not have that characteristic, at least as far as we know. So part of the Venetian Republic is Cyprus at this time. And it looks like that's where you have a multi-generational uh, set of families of Ethiopian descent. They're, um, by this time, 1540s, 1550s, they're in Nicosia. And not only are they in Nicosia, but there's a church that's been given to them, loaned to them, for them to be able to worship in and have their service in the liturgy and gaze, the Ethiopian liturgical language. And they're living there and they, they have various occupations. So they're there. So that, that is different than the Portuguese society because Portuguese society does have people like that. But the Portuguese side also has this underlying layer of this peasantry and then Africans who are enslaved that are in it. But on the issue of mobility, yes, there are people who are able to move towards different levels of mobility. And there are people who are able to be recognized by the government or by the monarchy. So here's the case. You mentioned economics. So one of the first stories that I had heard about African Christians in Portugal, 
was in the, again, 1500s. There's some African men who are, are fishermen and their women sell the fish in the market. Some of the, excuse my language again, white Portuguese don't like the fact that they're selling their, pro, their, their fish in the market. So they're trying to block them from doing that. Now, is that economic competition? Is that ethnic? Is that racism? I mean, but they're, trying, but they're organized within a lay society called a confraternity. And their lay society has a charter from the monarchy. So they use their lay society to make an appeal to the monarch for them to have the right to sell fish in the market. And they win. And there's other stories like this. Because there's a legal apparatus for them to appeal to, which, of course, is not true for you know, enslaved Africans for the most part within North America. They do. They do it. And there are cases on where they win. All the way up to, in, in other places, Germany and other places, you have people, again, of African descent winning even up to the 1600s. So it's that kind of environment. So number one, they're there. Number two, they're accepted in the church. Number three, at least the children of, of European and African ancestry do become priests, and they become in other positions. But there's some that are of only African ancestry. They also become poets and other things within the society and they function. Now, I will say that it does look like there's a, a colorism. So you'll have comments about this person being black and things like that. But what I have not seen, and what scholars who study it you know, more than I do, it does not look like that their society is organized around race. Right. That's, that's a critical be. distinction. Right. Yeah. So prejudice yeah. probably does exist in this market situation, but the society is not organized around it. So the, it wasn't like Jim Crow, even though you would have had racism, maybe even some racial animus intentions, the government, the economy w wasn't structured around the, the imposition of race to form it and shape it. And that's why during our era of modern racism, you don't see Roman Catholics who are of African descent in the 18th or 19th century. You have them in the 16th century. You don't see it again. Maybe there's somebody in the 17th. But you have to really wait till the 20th century. 1890s, there's an African-American family that could pass for white, the Healy family. One is the founder of Georgetown, and the other one becomes a bishop. But people, I think, outside of their hometown thought they were white. So they're passing. But, but people who are recognizably acknowledging it is not happening. And therefore, there is this story. So there's, again, two stories. One is you cannot let a slavery framework define the whole period. The second one is you cannot let modern racism define the period because modern racism hasn't even been constructed yet. So modern racism is a unique thing. It's something distinct. And what you're saying is our modern conceptions of how race functions, we should not impose that on the past. That even if we see racial tension, even if we see some segregation, we should not impose a modern definition on the 15th, 16th century. That's correct. And the other reason why is because in that period, people defined peoplehood by your religion. They wanted to know, are you Christian? Are you Muslim? Are you Jewish? Or are you traditional religion? And as you know, the history of Europe in this time is the expelling of Muslims and Jews, especially from the Iberian Peninsula. And the segregation of Jews, ghettos, I, I understand from scholars of, of, of Jewish history, 
ghettos begin to emerge during, I think, the latter part of the 1500s. But, but during some part of the 1500s is when you be first begin to see the ghetto. So there is religious discrimination. There is religious segregation. There is religious anti-Semitism. All of that exists, but it's directed towards someone's religion and it's not directed towards someone's heritage, whether you're from Africa. But the second part of that, I don't know what to do with it. So the, the Spaniards in particular wanted to figure out, are you an old Christian, meaning have a Christian lineage that precedes you know, the conversion of Muslims and Jews to Christianity, especially in the, the late 1400s, early 1500s? Or are you a new Christian, meaning your family converted because of being coerced, because either they converted or they got expelled? So they're very suspicious of new Christians. And in order to go to the Americas and be funded, you had to be an old Christian. There's a scholar who um, has, has studied this, one of the groups within Spain. Africans were ruled as being old Christians, while Jews and Muslims were new Christians. Why? Because the Spaniards and this Portuguese knew that the church in Ethiopia goes back to antiquity. And they were willing to read, really almost engraft, the recent converts from the Congo from the late 1480s, early 1490s, graft them into that framework that they're now connected with this church that goes back to antiquity. So again, they could have discriminated. You know, they could have said, no, we're going to differentiate between the two. Your conversion period is the 1480s, 1490s, just like the Jews and Muslims. Therefore, we're going to classify you the same. But they did not. So it really was something like we see in Galatians 3.28, where it was the religion that brought people together. And the sorts of distinctions that we have today weren't the things that people cared about back then in terms of how they determined if you were in group or out of group, right? It was really your fidelity to whatever religion you were a part of. And obviously, 16th century is also all the acrimony over the fact of which Christian you are. You know, are you Orthodox? Are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Even though that's the category, they're still fighting over it but they still see themselves as insiders. And they all, I mean, except for, again, a 16th century scholar probably helped me more, but except for maybe the Mennonites or Anabaptists, Jews had a very hard time in Europe at this time. They did. And this discussion about Europe and particularly Ethiopians, from what I remember, there were Africans traveling in Germany around the time of the Reformation. There were African Christians that were in Western Europe during the Reformation. Is this true? Again, the part amazing story is not only is there interaction between Ethiopian Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholics, and that story has, has gotten a lot of attention, especially in Ethiopian studies. Unfortunately, not enough within church history or Reformation studies. So that story has been told. I, along with a small group of other people, have been telling about the Protestant interaction. And so therefore you have Ethiopian Christians meeting monks, but also meeting popes and bishops and cardinals and letters are being written in exchange between on the Catholic side. But you also have now this famous case from 1534 where an Ethiopian uh, Orthodox Christian travels up to Wittenberg to see Martin Luther. 
the famous Protestant reformer. And we know about the story, not because the Ethiopian has left the record that we have found, but we know about the story because Martin Luther has left the record and so has in Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's sort of younger co-reformer. And this, this letter is, a, the, the meeting is amazing. Number one, again, when I first heard about it, I, I just thought it was unbelievable because now there's this Protestant and Catholic part of the story and Ethiopians are showing interest in learning more about Catholicism and learning more about Protestantism, not necessarily to convert, but because they wanted to be cosmopolitan Christians. So in 1534, this um, Ethiopian uh, cleric, his official name is Abba Mikael, but he could be translated into Michael the deacon, because that's what Luther calls him a deacon. In this meeting, and it looks like they, they have dinner over a couple of days, so it doesn't look like it's a one-time discussion. But in this discussion, Luther asks his questions about Ethiopian Christianity from his vantage point of being a Protestant who is now outside voluntarily of Rome and in recognizing the Pope. And then this Ethiopian cleric is asking questions, trying to find out what is this Protestant Reformation about? So it's a two-way conversation. The next part of it is when Luther summarizes the discussion, he says that, you know, they talk about the Trinity, the sort of symbol of the faith. They talk about creeds. They talk about what do they do for sacraments. Catholics at this time is only sharing one of the elements. Protestants, in this case, want to share bread and wine. And they find out that the Ethiopians do the same. They find out that the Ethiopian Bible is in a local language. where The Catholics only want to recognize the Latin version, the Vulgate. And Luther, of course, and other reformers want to have it in the vernacular, in German and French and whatever. They recognize that the Ethiopians don't believe in purgatory, and then just and they have a merit clergy, and it goes along the line. And and the thing is that two things are going on. One is is that Martin Luther is finding out that this reform that he, he started that has left created a set of churches that are outside of Rome's authority. And in a sense, he's asking the question, can a church exist if it is not under the institutional supervision, one of the ancient seats of the bishopric, such as Rome? Can you exist? Are you only a church if you are in affiliation with Rome? The Ethiopians to him show that you could be a church going back to antiquity and not be in, under the subjection or control of Rome. And that, to me, number one, gives him a legitimacy as a church. Number two, this is my argument, so I'm not saying it's Luther's argument, but it almost looks like then Luther is acknowledging that Ethiopia is a forerunner of Protestantism. The kinds of things that Protestants will do, Ethiopia had already done. And then third, that as we know, he looks at the church in Rome in a very critical way, seeing it as not being a gospel church, not holding to the faith. But he recognizes the church in Ethiopia as being part of the universal church. In addition, we need to realize that Luther is not easy to please theologically. So Luther will not acknowledge and want to have ecumenical relationships with the churches in Switzerland. So Zwingli, they have a, a major discussion called a colloquy. They agree on everything but one thing, which is how does one understand communion or the sacraments? And so Luther says, 
the relationship is off. And with some others, he says the same thing. But it looks like he's willing to say, with the church in Ethiopia, the relationship is on. That's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I, I've been to seminary twice in the Reformation tradition, and I have never, ever, ever heard anything like that. In fact, the way we're taught about that narrative, you would think that there were no African Christians in Europe ever. In fact, you would have thought they just showed up last year. My hope is, is that people that I'm working with and then other people that I don't even know um, that are working on similar kinds of things, that when we get to the next 20 years, that somebody going to seminary in the 2040s won't be able to say what you just said, that they will know that Ethiopian Christians, as well as some African Christians from the Atlantic coast, were in Europe during the time of the Reformation and that they interacted with um, leaders of the Reformation on the Catholic and Protestant side. But the next thing I want them to know, I work more on the Protestant side. There's another group of scholars who are working on the Catholic side, and there's a couple in particular that are, are arguing that Ethiopian Christianity served as part of the debates during the Council of Trent at a couple of moments. And I only say a couple, because it could be more. But for me, I mean, the fact that Ethiopian Christianity is used to argue a point within the Council of Trent has them not only sort of recognize they exist, not only that they are living in Rome, not only that they're interacting, but they become part of the conversation. And I know only because I'm reading others, I have not done primary research on this myself, but there's two key points it looks like that they show up at this point. I think there's going to be more as we look at it. One is around 1547, there's a debate about how one looks at baptism. And Cardinal Savini has helped pay for, along with some of the Ethiopians also raising money, for the translation and publication of the Ethiopian baptismal rite and of the Ethiopian worship service, the liturgy. And one of the speakers, a priest, Jesuit, of Sal, I think his name is uh, Salmaran, introduces that baptismal document to make his argument about baptism being understood in a Catholic way. The scholar that looks at this says, almost everybody else is going with medieval anthologies to make their points. But there's a small group of people basically around this Cardinal Savini who are using documents such as the Ethiopian documents, as well as using Maronite and other documents from the Arab uh, part of the world, and maybe even some Greek Orthodox documents. The second place they show up, this is another scholar that's shown, is that, the, that when the Catholic Church in the early 1560s, near the end of the Council of Trent, which is the major council that reforms the Catholic Church, they're debating should Latin be the Latin version of the Bible, the Vulgate version, the translation, be the only legitimate, uh, permitted version. And so they're debating it back and forth. And so this Spanish priest, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, it's A-R-Z-E, so I don't know if it's R's or R-Z, but he then interjects, along with some others, that no, we cannot say all vernaculars are prohibited except for the, the Vulgate. We cannot say they're all banned except for the Vulgate, because there are Christians such as those in Ethiopia that have their Bible in the vernacular, in this case, in, in a, a liturgical language that they had used earlier on. So he's bringing in that we can, you know what the outcome is? The outcome is that they then do a qualifier 
only the Vulgate can be used within Latin churches, churches that are connected with the Latin liturgy with Rome, but churches outside, such as those in Ethiopia, in Russia, within the Greek Orthodox Church, we acknowledge that they do. We do not ban it. And that's, that's what, I'm, what I'm hearing is that Ethiopian Christianity r- really began to sh- shape the conversation in Western Europe about the future of Christianity, both on the Protestant side and the Catholic side. Can I go way out on speculation? So there's another small group of scholars, and small, I mean, I think two or three, so I'm not talking about small, like 200. There's a couple of scholars who think that there's a group of, of um, people who are part of, of Rome and, and who are Roman Catholic at this time who think that the way to resolve the division between Protestants and Catholics is to look towards the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. There's a scholar, I believe his name is Luis Felipe Tomas. He argues that, and I haven't been in any place where that's been discussed. Forget about debated. But that's a discussion I'd love to get on the table. I'd love to get people who know about Ethiopian Christianity at this time, to have someone like Tomas there in the discussion, have people who know folk like Guatieri, who's a, a reformer in Rome in this time that, that a scholar told me he believes he thought that, and for us to then open up this discussion and to see if it really is more than merely acknowledging the role of Ethiopian Christianity, more than saying that it might be a forerunner of Protestantism, or saying that it might provide some legitimacy for some Roman Catholic practices, such as certain prayers and primacy of the Pope, etc. But also to possibly say that it was thought by a group like Guatieri to be a way to overcome the division between Protestants and Catholics, this would be sometime by the early 1540s. I should say, by the time you get to 1550, Ethiopian Christianity is looked at sideways, but at this time, it's looked at with glowing eyes. And if that's the case, and again, even if Guatieri is the only one that thinks that, to me, that's major, because it's not merely they're in the room, they're showing up, but it's the fact that they were thought to be a possible way to resolve the conflict. And then lastly on that, that's an aside, at the very end of Trent, the Pope was interested in having representatives from the wider Christian church. A letter actually goes to Ethiopia asking them to send some delegates, or at least a delegate, to the Council of Trent somewhere near the end of their session in 1560. They could have been in the room. No one does show up. There's a thing about whether the letter actually got to, to them or if it got to them, whether they actually felt they needed to send somebody. But again, Ethiopia is a topic. That, that, I started all this with only that. I only want to make Ethiopian Christianity a topic. As we move into the 17th century and Christianity is, you know, the, the Reformation's happened, the Great Divides, well, the Second Great Divides happened after, after the, the, the 1054 split. And you have a vibrant Christianity in Ethiopia. You have it in parts of North Africa. You have Christianity in Portugal, Black Christianity in Portugal, Spain. Christians are all over Europe. And then the American story is where people want to make the case that if it wasn't for the sort of white Christian evangelism, there would be no Black Christianity, which really begins to make less sense 
given this European narrative, right? I mean, if this, this European and this African narrative, if there were these black Christians already existing in Western Europe and then in parts of Africa, is it really accurate to say that the only way that blacks slaves would have received Christianity would have been solely through the evangelism of some white Europeans. How should we be thinking about the introduction and the proliferation of Christianity in the black experience here in the colonies? It is very clear that by the time you get to 1560, 1570, in places that will become Mexico City, or a little later, uh, Lima and Peru, or Cartagena, which I believe becomes part of Colombia as we know it, you will have African Christian presence there. There's one scholar who notes that within Mexico in the 1550s, the choir director was of African descent, and there was complaints by the Europeans that the choir sang too fast. I mean, talking about a stereotype of Black people, but this is 1550s. But not only that, I've done some work um, with philanthropy and history of philanthropy, not a lot, just a little bit. And I was working on this paper that I, I unfortunately did not finish. But some of these African Christians or Christians of African descent within places like um, Lima and Mexico City actually left wills. They left a will with saying where they're leaving their belongings. There's some women within Lima who want to leave money. Get this. They want to leave money to free Christian captives in North Africa who have been captured by Muslim traders and others who are there. Others leave money for some shrine or something within Jerusalem. Now, these are people of African descent of modest means, but they have this cosmopolitan view of the church. One of my other favorite accounts of this is um, Afro-Mexican Christian who's in Mexico City, and he owns, this is like by, by 1610, he owns two houses, and they're somewhere near, it's either near the cathedral or the medical college, I'm blanking, but it's near a major institution. And the fact that he owns two houses, just, I mean, I'm not sure what to do with that. I, when I think of Africans in 1610 in the Americas, they're not property owners, but he owns two houses, and he leaves the houses to his daughter, but who he claimed, who states his daughter was born free, the wife was free, all this other stuff. But he says, if the daughter does not have children, then the property of the two houses is to go to the lay society that he helped found it, which is this, a confraternity, as I described. So your institution building, that's there. So now let's get to uh, North America. So North America really has two stories because Spanish Florida will be a space where African Christians will be allowed to exercise some levels of authority and autonomy that's there. I haven't seen it to the degree that one finds within uh, you know, Europe at the same time, but there's a totally different story there and a totally different level of mobility, and they're recognized as being Catholic. Within what becomes the Dutch colony, which is now where you are, um, New York, which was New Netherlands, and the city that you're in, which was New Amsterdam, um, scholars have noted that by 1630, you have African Christians who are from Congo or Angola. The ships are coming from those ports, they go by the fact that they're being recognized by the church as already being Christian. And then there's a small group within Virginia, it looks like a similar kind of story, all within 1630s, 1640s. So we have the names. Um, partly we have the names because 
at a certain point, they wanted their involuntarily servitude, the status that they're in, to end and for them to then become free. And within both places, both Virginia, Maryland, and what becomes New York, um, that happens. In all those cases, a group of these Africans become property owners, both in New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and in Virginia. So they're not only part of the church, but they become part of the property class. And some of them, at least a little later, some of their descendants even are elected to local positions within states like Connecticut, that they're elected to some you know, local office that's there in the 1690s. But the other part of the story, in addition to what I just described in the 1630s, 1640s, now there's people who believe that, scholars who believe that in 1619, on the slave ship that, that came over to, to what becomes Jamestown, that there were also some African Christians that were on that ship. But the second place that there are also some accounts of some Africans that are coming from England. This one, I think, is just a couple that we know, which means that we, there's others that we probably don't know because their name just have the surface in the records. And then the person of African descent who becomes a legislator within one of the colonies, it's in Maryland in the 1640s, is either from Cape Verde or the, possibly from the Iberian Peninsula. So we can then see that they're coming, there's a small group coming from Europe. And again, it's unclear whether we're talking about a handful or 30 or 40, but there are some. And we see that there's a group that's coming from the Congo and Angola area. Lastly on this, within low country, South Carolina, matter of fact, parish that's part of Goose Creek, low country, South Carolina, there's an Anglican priest in his diary by 1710. He writes that in his parish, on the plantation, there's a small group of enslaved Africans who are asking for communion. How do they know about communion? Well, he says that where they're from in Angola, there is a church that, that these people are part of, and there's even a college. And he says that, this is now reading between the lines, he is not contesting their baptism, but he wants to know because he's, he's Protestant, are they willing basically to denounce what he calls all popery, all things related to the Pope? He's a very good anti-Catholic. If I, if I can use good and anti-Catholic in the same sentence, I should, I should probably rephrase that. He's, he's uh, consistent in this anti-Catholicism. And that's what he asked for. He didn't ask for them to be rebaptized because he recognized the legitimacy of their baptism. And they're willing to go through this Protestant uh, formation and they eventually get admitted. But then he also says that there's some of them, and I don't know whether some is one or two or three, who know how to read. And they have a book that they won't let the slaveholders or anybody else see. And they talk about things that are from that book. He thinks it's a Bible, but he doesn't know. But it's something related to the Christian faith. If you don't mind, I just want to fast forward the story a little bit. So when you get to around 1739, there's a, what now scholars believe, a group of Africans who are Christian from Congolese and Angolan descent who were Catholic, but they had to practice Protestantism because Catholicism was not practiced within South Carolina at the time. It's a British colony. And there's an understanding that they have from where I don't know that to go back to the beginning of this little part that I talked about North America, if they can get to Florida, to the Spanish colony of Florida, they can resume their practice of Catholicism and they can be free. 
And do you know, that wasn't a rumor. The Spanish actually said, any enslaved African from the British colony, if you make it to Florida, we will make sure you're free. And if you're already Catholic, you can resume practicing of the faith. And they end up leading a rebellion that's called the Stono Rebellion. In that rebellion, there's some Africans that actually got to Florida. They actually got to the Spanish colony. They resumed their Catholic faith. They created a town outside of St. Augustine, a chapel and everything that was there, and they were free. Now, the others that didn't make it to Florida, unfortunately, they were killed, some were tried, and that's how we have the account of the trial. Then, of course, that's squashed. We now believe, we now understand that even though there were Africans from different parts of the Atlantic coast of Africa that were part of that rebellion, the leaders were of this Congolese-Angolan heritage and look like they're Christian and Catholic, even though they're in a Protestant country, a Protestant colony, and that they were the ones that were sort of the uh, masterminds of this venture, even though they were not um, the only ones. Which means then, going back to your training in, in Black theology, they saw a link between the freedom to practice the faith and the freedom to be able to live a life out of slavery. They saw that as part of what it meant to be Christian. Is there evidence, particularly in the South, of these Christians of African descent being used as means of evangelism? Did Christianity spread amongst Black, sort of the, the slave class, because of the influence of these already Christians of African descent? Is there any evidence that that happened? At this point, we only have indirect evidence. So one of the main pieces of indirect evidence is that the first mass conversion of people of African descent on the North American continent is in low country, South Carolina. And in low country, South Carolina, Africans from Ang Angolan and Congolese descent were a higher percentage of the population than Africans from West Africa in particular. And so therefore, one can make a correlation that because of disproportionate number of people from this area, and that as the priest uh, showed in his diary, some of them were already Christian, that why wasn't the mass conversion in Virginia or Maryland? Why was it in low country South Carolina? Maybe because of the factor that's there that stands out above. And then, of course, how they both recognize and how some of them still held to a Catholic identity, even though they're in a Protestant colony, British colony that's run by Protestants. That's the fact. So unfortunately, there's no accounts, you know, that says here's the link. So, so like the diary that we have talking about the church in Angola and the college being there, at this point, nothing like that has emerged. And so at least in my background, the narrative goes that everyone was just worshiping rocks and trees and, and stones back then, and it was the introduction of Christianity. Because the, the story goes, there's no Christianity being practiced by anyone of African descent anywhere in the Southeast at all, ever, until the white saviors came with their theology and introduced it. And what I'm hearing today is that that's not true. We don't know necessarily the relationship between these already Christians of African descent and the other Africans with, with whom they shared space. But what we do know that's really clear is this just not true, that there was no Christianity being practiced 
at all by people of, of African descent. So I would say point number one, that we see that these African Christians that do arrive in North America, they remain Christian. And we can even see a family lineage where their children still show up on parish rolls. So there's a continuity that's there. I wish someone could do a family history of one of these Christian groups to just see how you can go up to two or 300 years. But number two, we see Africans like the ones we saw um, within Lokanich, South Carolina, asking for the ministry of the church. It's their agency. They're asking for it. They're not being forced. Matter of fact, there's a hesitance to admit them in the church. There's not even evangelization at this time. Number three, we can see that it is not because a slaveholder wants to pacify the African population by introducing Christianity, but we can see that they're already Christian. And then within the Stono Rebellion, we can see that their Christianity possibly aids them into both rejecting slavery and fighting against slavery. And then number four, I think we can also see not only then is there a presence, but we can also see that there might be the beginning of them theologizing of what it means to be a Christian. But in their theologizing, we can see that they are critiquing this collusion between Christianity and this emerging modern racism. They see that as undermining the integrity of the gospel. And they, in the language of, of one of my, or what my main advisor, um, James Melvin Washington, um, they are the defenders of the faith. Dr. David Daniels, professor of church history at McCormick Theological Seminary, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on the truth about this story. My heart is so warm right now. I'm excited. I want to go read this history and figure this out because I think if we get this story right, it just changes the tapestry of how we think about the way that Christianity came to the States, how it ended up in the Americas, how it ended up in Western Europe, and that African Christianity is not tangential to the story. African Christianity is central to the story of the history of Christianity in Europe and in the Americas. And we have got to tell the story right. We got to get this history right, Dr. Dans. We have to do that. And the kind of work that you're doing is really central to helping people connect these dots in a way that represents what actually happened. And I really hope you're able to keep going, brother, to keep pushing and to publish this, to keep speaking on this. I'm just so thrilled that you're able to do this work. This has just really blown my mind today. And I am, I kind of want to go back to school now and do another PhD in church history to kind of, you know, you, you said, I wish somebody would do this. And then I'm like, oh, I think I'll do it. So uh, Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for joining me today on the Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you so much. God bless. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for their generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You all are the most important part of this experience. Thanks to you all for joining us today on this episode of the Anthony Bradley Show. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to engaging you again here at the King's College in New York City on the Anthony Bradley Show.